It is a general truth of American life that we are not a people much accustomed to being in need. We're generally well provided for. We're self-sufficient. We are incredibly wealthy, even, even if we struggle to recognize that sometimes. Incredibly wealthy. The Lord has tremendously blessed our nation. He has tremendously blessed us individually. Uh, but in many cases, our success can make our hearts proud. Proud. Because we think that we have done something that has given us all that we have. That our efforts and our efforts alone have yielded the result of success and wealth, comfort. And it is an inevitability of human life that the Lord will give us times when we are in very legitimate need. Maybe financially, uh, maybe with life circumstances, maybe with something else. And this has been on my mind a lot lately. Uh, it's been on our mind as a church you know, with our building being in need uh, for a new building. It's been on my mind because of the uh, yearning for the salvation of unbelieving family, uh, material needs. And we're often so puffed up with success that we can think that we are the solution. We think, I can fix this problem. I can figure it out. I can solve this. I can get what I need to get. This self-reliance assumes that we have a great, tremendous amount of power but when you're really desperately, truly in need, you realize this truth. We are actually very powerless. We are very powerless. We can do a whole lot less than we like to think that we can. And honestly, most of the time, for myself, turning to the Lord is not my first instinct. It is not my... my uh, initial reaction to go to the Lord in prayer, seeking for His aid when I need something. We're really not practiced at how to be genuinely reliant on God because we're not familiar with need like many other cultures in our world, world have been. So my aim this morning is to point us to the words of the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is given to the people of Israel in the days of their wandering. Uh, God had led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, it crossed over the Red Sea. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. That initial generation had died off. And Deuteronomy is the book that is given immediately prior to their entrance into the promised land. In fact, the end of Deuteronomy records Moses' death, and then Joshua, the next book, records them crossing the Jordan and heading into the promised land. And so these instructions were given to the people to instruct them in the days of their wilderness wanderings, to remind them of what had happened in the wilderness. So my aim is to draw our eyes to what God has said so that he may help us in the days of our own wilderness wanderings. I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, and we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll truck on through verse by verse. Let's read. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you 
and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Let's pray. Father, please speak through your word this morning. Lift our eyes upward to see you, to behold your glory, to love you, to submit to you, to lean on you, to depend on you. Cause us to recognize that we must be weak and meek and powerless and humble. Help us to honor you in our lives, to worship you with a pureness of heart, and to submit to all that you have declared in your word. Strengthen us by your spirit this morning and sanctify us for your glory. Amen. Verse 1 begins, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. To begin, I want to notice the second word of this verse, the whole commandment, the whole commandment. The obedience that God required of his people was complete, total, complete obedience. They were not permitted to choose only a part of God's law that they would like to obey. They were careful to obey the whole commandment. That's what he says. Whole commandment that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Now, I I will speak in a little bit of our particular relationship to the instructions of Moses and this text, but I do want to, at this point, because I came up first in the chapter, make mention of this point. Men make shipwreck of their faith when they suppose that they may discard some elements of God's holy commandments. God is not a partially holy God. Thus, neither are his people to be a partially holy people. There are, in our age, many so-called churches that are filled with preachers who fill the ears of the people with this message. The Lord is not concerned with what you do. The Bible is culturally outdated, and the commands we find in there are cultural. God is God of love, so do what feels right to you. Follow your heart. Brothers and sisters, the one who obeys such instructions will destroy themselves, will destroy themselves. Our God is unchanging. Malachi 3, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. We have Hebrews that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging, and that means his holiness is unchanging. His righteousness, his purity 
Yes, God loves his people, but that love burns against unrighteousness and conforms us to the image of his son. The Christian does not hear the instructions of the Father and then evaluate whether those instructions are correct or not. The true child of God obeys his Father, knows his voice. It would matter very little if a man in Israel thought the particular commands in Leviticus 18 about sexual immorality were culturally obtuse. God commanded it, and so they must do it. Church, may the Spirit stir our hearts. May we take seriously every single command of the Lord. We have this notion in our world that there's this line of sin. If we step over the line, we're in sin. But if we just snug on up right next to the line, then we're good. But that is so contrary to the entire thrust of what the, the Scriptures tell us. We are to be people that pursue holiness, not for our salvation, not because works make us right with God, but because He has rescued us from sin, because He has given us a new heart and a new spirit, because He has justified us and declared us righteous by faith. Because of those things, our attitude changes, our heart is changed. We seek to do what is most honoring to God. You cannot buddy up next to the line and think that that is not going to burn you. It's like the man who plays with fire, thinking he will escape unsinged. Do not play games with sin. Do not play games with sin. It will burn you. Take care to defend against any sin that your flesh may be tempted by. And not only those sins that are on our present cultural radar, all that God commands. What God has declared, we do. And everything that God has declared, we do. Moses says, the whole commandment that I command you, you shall be careful, careful to do. Intentional about. Israel was to make an intentional effort to do what God commanded commanded, not to incidentally wander into obedience, but to take seriously and straightforwardly the charge of obedience. Active obedience includes a knowledge of what God commands. How can one be careful to do what they are totally and wholly ignorant of? A knowledge and love for God results in understanding the things that God loves and the things that he hates. I love my wife and part of that love is knowing what she loves and knowing the things she hates, knowing what food she doesn't want me to bring home for dinner. And if I'm ignorant of those things, then it is my husbandly duty to learn those categories. Our king loves that which is good and right and holy and upright and righteous. And so we too are to love and do such things. We need to realize the flesh of man is crafty and far more strategic than we like to think. And so we must be careful and prepare well for the battle against sin. Saints, do not be found on the battlefield of temptation without armor and without a weapon and without a helmet. 
Only a fool marches onto that battlefield intentionally unprepared without knowing God's commandments, without looking to Him in desperate reliance for aid and victory, without a heart warmed with affection and love for the Savior, without grasping our spiritual weapons of prayer and fasting and meditation on His Word. And foolish is the man who heads knowingly into battle alone, without a man at his back, a man who knows his weaknesses, who sees the enemy, who keeps watch over his soul, who bears his burdens. Church, we are to yearn and strive and struggle and fight diligently against sin because the king deserves the faithful obedience of his people. He deserves our obedience. We must realize as well that the flesh is no help at all in the task of holiness. Unless the Spirit of God is at work in our hearts, we shall have no victory. And if you do not rely on Him, if you do not rely on His Spirit, we shall surely be destroyed. May God's Word reveal areas of indwelling sin in our hearts, and may the Spirit sanctify us to the glory of our Savior. The text says, be careful to do the whole commandment that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Notice the promise of covenant blessing and covenant curses in this call to obey. If the people of God are careful to do all that God has commanded, God will bless them with life, fruitfulness, children with the land. What would happen to the people in Israel who disobeyed? What would happen to the nation if they turned against the covenant? Death, fruitlessness, barrenness, exile, which is precisely what we see. Continue on to verse 2. Moses says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Israel must remember the whole way the Lord your God led them in the wilderness. Now we have to ask, what in the world was worth remembering about the wilderness? Israel wandered in this barren wasteland for four decades, four decades, they wandered without clear direction, no goal that they were waiting for 40 years, without the means to supply themselves. In fact, an entire generation died out. And yet Moses speaks to the next generation, you need to take care to remember everything about the Lord's direction of you in the wilderness. Why? Why would they need to remember the time prior to the promised land? We need to understand what was it that Israel was concerned with? What, did, what, what was on their mind? All sorts of very relevant things, honestly. How are we going to get food? How are we going to get water? How are we going to defeat these Canaanites in the land. They're, they're literally giants. What are we going to do about that? The Israelites' highest concern were natural, finite, earthly things. They were concerned with their well-being, with their safety. And so what had God naturally led them into? Hunger, thirst, 
wilderness need. The Lord did not have the same priorities as the people did. His goals during their wandering were different than theirs. He was concerned with these things, humility and obedience and dependence. In other words, remember the wilderness, dear Israel, for in the wilderness, you were taught the things that your God values. In the wilderness is where you saw your total, complete need for Him. You saw what obedience would yield, and you saw the dangers of disobedience. You saw with clear, unobstructed vision your total, complete, utter reliance on your God for every single thing. And so Moses tells this generation, remember the wanderings. Remember your reliance. Remember your neediness. Cling to that. Verse 3, he goes on. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, that may sound a little familiar. That's because this is one of the verses Jesus cites in the time of his temptation in the Gospels, interestingly enough, in the time when he was in the wilderness. Notice the very first line of of verse 3, and he humbled you. Verse 2, he had said uh, that the purpose of God leading him in the wilderness was that he might humble you. But verse 3 says, and he humbled you. So God succeeded in humbling Israel. How? By letting them hunger. By letting them hunger. God let the people of Israel hunger. That's easy to read past, but think about that for a moment. Think about what that means. Our good and gracious and loving and compassionate God, He let the people experience hunger, painful, genuine need. You have to like put yourself in a little bit, the mind of the Israelites at this time, okay? Just imagine, you're you're a slave in Egypt. Lots of hard work has been done, and you're told one day, paint your door frame with blood of a lamb. Pack up your things, grab some unleavened bread, plunder your neighbor, and then set off with a couple million people, okay? Deal. So, after being brought to an unpassable sea by the miraculous hand of the Lord, you realize you're in the middle of stinking nowhere, You've passed through this, this sea, great miracle, and you're on the other side, and you're like, I see desert. Your provisions that you grabbed in haste probably do not last very long. You take the last bit of bread, and I can Im- imagine parents feeding their children, their already whiny children, the last bit of bread that they brought. And as you look around, the reality of the situation begins to fall into place. How in the world are millions of us going to survive in the wilderness? This bleak landscape offers little hope of producing food, and who will trade with you way out here? If you did find someone to trade with, how are they going to supply enough for a couple million people? Interestingly enough, in the Exodus account, the the two stories immediately following the crossing of the Red Sea 
are the people of Israel grumbling about two things, water and food. The first thing, Exodus 16 records the people saying this, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We read this, and it is really easy for us to scoff. Did they not just see? Did they not just see what God had done? Did they not just witness the plagues? Were they not brought across unpassable terrain by the hand of the Lord? Are they not at Sinai where they beheld the glory of the Lord and a, a, a cloud over the mountain? Did they not hear the voice of the Lord in the Ten Commandments? And yet we have to realize our hearts are not much different than theirs. Our story is much like Israel's. We have been brought out of slavery to sin by the blood of a spotless lamb. We are headed to the promised land, a land where death has no sting, where the glory of the Lord shines forth, where our needs are supplied, where justice is perfect, where we glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever, the land of perfect joy. But we're not there yet. We're not in slavery to sin anymore. For now, we reside in a kind of wilderness, a kind of wilderness. And though we see the banks of the Jordan right there, Though our eye beholds the, a, a shimmer of the glorious land that awaits, we find ourselves now presently surrounded by wild animals, brush, heat, need, hunger. This narrative of Israel's exodus and wandering gives us a pattern from which we may receive instruction. As the New Testament says, these things are written for our instruction. And so, permit me to take the principles in verse 3 and apply them in three different ways to our current circumstances. First, our physical needs. Second, our spiritual hunger. And third, for our reliance upon the Word of the Lord. We we'll talk about those three things in turn. So first, let's consider how this verse is relevant for our physical needs. Verse 3. We need to note, first off, God's material promises to Israel are not directly applicable to us. What I mean by that is, if we obey the Lord, we aren't going to live in peace in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, that's not the promises given to us in this age. But that does not mean that there's nothing to be gained from the story. God let them hunger and then provided food for them that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man needs bread to live. That's what's ironic about this statement. That's what's notable about this statement. We need food. Man was not to be reliant on the bread. Man was not to be reliant on the bread, but on the word of the Lord. Food, with all its nutrition, is not the thing that sustains our life. Why do your daily meals sustain you, preserve you, do cocoa buffs have some inherent ability to give life to dust? I think not. Food is nothing more than the means God uses to providentially uphold our lives and our existence. Food is the means God uses. So let me ask this question. Which is more reliable, that food will nourish you or that God's word is trustworthy? 
Israel went hungry in the wilderness so that they may realize that food is not their greatest need. Food is not what Israel needed most when they were starving. God was what they needed. Unless the Lord gave sustenance, they would surely have perished. Their need taught them to look to God, not to bread, not to the works of their hands. And listen, this whole situation is just so foreign to our modern paradigm of who God is. God God permitted, He permitted His people, children, to hunger, to hunger and thirst. He brought them out of Egypt, where they had food, into a land where they had nothing. And then, and then, He provided, not by giving them massive harvests of grain, not by giving them lots of trading partners, not by working through the works of their hands, but literally giving them food from heaven, literally, enough for only a single day at a time. That meant that Israel could not plan, they could not store, they could not plant great fields of crops to feed them. They could only receive. They could only be in total desperate reliance on God. And what do we understand from this? God wanted His people to be meek. He wanted them to be desperately reliant on Him. God made it so that Israel's might would not be because of anything they did. In other words, we can't look to Israel's time in the wilderness and say, whoa, these guys knew how to survive in harsh situations. We should put them on some Survivor Man TV show so they could teach us a trick or two. No, no, it was the exact opposite. They were utterly unprepared. It was not because of their power, strength, cunning knowledge. It was because the hand of the Almighty God who gives bread its nutritional value, the hand of that God was upon them to care for them, to provide for them. So God taught Israel this lesson of humble reliance so that He may train His people for their future. We see in the rest of Holy Scripture, His people needed to learn to not rely on their own abilities or circumstances. They needed to learn to keep their gaze on the Lord, the sole one who could preserve, sustain, and provide for them. It was exactly this attitude that the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 20 when he said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And indeed, what do we find as we trace Israel's history through the rest of the Old Testament. When Israel did cast themselves on the Lord, when they were completely dependent on Him, did He not preserve them them by His mighty hand? Did He not give them manna? Did He not give them victory over the nations in Canaan? Did He not preserve Jerusalem from Assyria? Did He not restore the people from Babylon? Did He not provide a Messiah king to rule justly and restore His people? What God wanted in their hearts was humble reliance. What God wants in our hearts, dear saints, is humble reliance. The most powerful Christians are the weakest. The most powerful Christians are the the ones weak, who are simple and needy and dependent, who are reliant 
on God, the ones who have no option but to rely on the Lord, the ones who fall on their knees and proclaim, unless you help me, O God, unless you help me, God, all of my efforts will assuredly fail. And if that be the case, if all that I put my hand to is to fail, glory be to your holy name, O Lord. With finances, so many of us think that we have to run around, we have to work and work and work until we've gotten all our ducks in a row. We have to think, we think that we have to perfectly plan our future, have enough money in the account. We see this with pastors today who, who think that they need to be the most equipped, intelligent, creatively relevant communicator. With evangelism, when we do street evangelism on Thursdays, I found this in my own heart. I've thought, I've got to have the most watertight, apologetically masterful gospel presentation. And lo and behold, the nights where I find the least success are the nights where I think I am on top of my game. Now, don't mishear me. Hard work, wisdom, planning, these things aren't wrong. They're good. But the man who has great confidence in the flesh will accomplish things that only a man can accomplish. The Christian is the one who ought to say, I shall do what you have given me to do with great faithfulness. I am poor, I am weak, I am holy and utterly powerless to do even the least thing for the kingdom of heaven. If it be thy will, O Lord, provide, provide. Apart from you, I can do nothing, nothing. And if I am to honor you with my starving belly, then so be it. Whether I live or die, Give me joy in the glory of you, my King. I think that we Americans fear reliance. I think we fear it. I, don't, I think we don't understand it, in part because we're taught from every angle to be self-obsessed. How can I be prepared? How can I be wealthy? How can I be comfortable? What can I do to change this? Five quick steps to make me good at whatever thing I'm trying to do. How can I make my mark on the world? And we mistakenly assume through all of these messages that we are what's most important, that our needs are highest. And when famine comes, when hardship hits, when we find ourselves in genuine need and we've had this perspective, we don't understand it. We don't get it. We don't get why God would bring such things to pass. It doesn't seem to help me. It doesn't seem to serve my purposes. But learn, oh church, from this text, God is not doing these things to make our name great. He is not doing these things to make our life comfortable. God's highest goal is God. God did not create the nation of Israel to be about bringing vain glory for a really cool nation of men. God brought Israel out of Egypt to bring glory to that nation's God, glory to himself. He may well place us in situations where we are in physical need, where we are weak and poor and desperate he does that so that he may receive glory when he richly provides our every need. 
Because when human weakness gives way to great, glorious, and miraculous happenings, God receives the recognition, the glory, and the praise. I was listening this last week to a uh, sermon, I don't think it was a sermon, it was just a talk, uh, by uh, Paul Washer. And he was recounting specific examples of times in his mission agency's history where they were in dire financial need. I mean, like his missionaries and employees had not been paid for weeks. They were out of money. And he had a particular conviction that if God has called you to do something, he will provide all your needs to accomplish it. And so at that time, he felt convicted to not make their needs known to a single person. They didn't raise support. They didn't campaign for funds. They did not put out a big, well-crafted video saying, hey, we have this great mission we need to do, even though it would have almost certainly gotten them the funds that they needed. When they needed something, you know what they would do? They would, at 3 p.m., stop what they were doing, go into a closet together, close the door, and fall on their knees and pray and pray and wait. Wait in need, wait in reliance, wait in desperation, so that if they survived, the only one who could possibly get recognition for it would be God, for He was the only one who even knew of their need in the first place. And sure enough, as they prayed, though it lasted for uh, a couple months' time, this, this extreme need, the Lord provided miraculously, specifically, what they needed, when they needed it most. He referred to in that talk of TV preachers who would say, if you don't support me, then our ministry is going to go down. We need your support to keep this ministry afloat. And he said, then let it go down. Then let it die. Because it's not about our glory. It's not about our name. It's not about our ministry. It's not about our preservation. It is about His kingdom. It is about His glory. It is about His name. If we fall apart, if we are forgotten, praise God. Only let the work of the Lord go on. Only let His kingdom advance. Only let His deeds be praised. Oh, that our names would be struck from the annals of history. Oh, that we would be forgotten totally. Oh, that glory would be given to our King and our God. May our lives yield great harvests of fruit, pleasing and honoring to the Lord. So church, when you're in need, financial, material, relational, whatever, have this perspective. Be not anxious about anything. Concern yourself first with the glory of the Lord. Make yourself humble, obedient, reliant children, and turn to Him for aid. Present your requests to God with thanksgiving, and He will provide your needs. Not necessarily an American standard of what we need, but in a way that shows his great grace, his kindness towards us, and in a way that elevates his name. Verse 4, we go on to the next verse, uh, emphasizes the degree of the Lord's provision and care for Israel. He says, your clothing, your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. That's, they're in the wilderness, okay? Dirt and mud, sweat, tears. 
Their clothing didn't wear out. No holes in the shirts. The sandals still latched. 40 years is a long time, especially given constant wilderness conditions. And yet the Lord's care and provision for his people was so complete, not even their clothes were worn. Having considered the physical provision of God, let us now turn to consider our spiritual hunger, our spiritual needs. Israel was physically starved in the wilderness, and as I said earlier, we are not physically in the wilderness, but we are spiritually in between our exodus and our entrance into the promised land. And so, in the days of our spiritual wilderness wandering, we must be aware of our spiritual hunger. What does it mean to be spiritually hungry? to be spiritually famished. Humans are built, designed by our maker to be filled. Our souls long for satisfaction, for purpose, for meaning. This is why we see the world turn itself around to find things that might fill the heart for even but a moment. The soul's hunger is insatiable. It's always searching, always needing to be filled as it was designed to be. And oh, what, what sorry things has Satan schemed to place before us as tasty treats. Culture tells us satisfaction is found in riches. Oh, you shall have all you need. Your heart will be gladdened and satisfied. And yet if you ask a man who has much wealth, they will tell you, to feast one's soul on money for sustenance is to feast on rocks and stones. The religions of the world say, you must do particular deeds, works, and ordinances. By doing such things, you will find meaning and purpose. You will fill your heart with gladness. You hear this around Christmas a lot of time. Your generosity will put a smile on your face, will make you feel good inside. The hedonistic spirit of the age cries out, fulfill your base desires, drink the wine of immorality, and you will be satisfied. Another man might cry to you, TV, movies, sports, worldly entertainment, rest your mind a while. Just rest, be filled every evening before the TV. Sit there, take it in, gulp it down, it will fill you. But hear me, filling your soul with these things is like filling the stomach with smoke when you're starving. How many more things could I list? What, what does the world tell us to be filled with? Our, our careers, romance, music, fame, Instagram, possessions, importance, sex, children, a spouse, recognition. It's, it, it, all of these things are like Satan offering a Twix bar to the Israelites in the desert. It's not going to keep them alive for very long. How long will you survive on such candy? A soul that drinks deeply from that well will cry out with Solomon, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. These things only create greater longing, greater longing. All men desperately cry out for sustenance. And when men grab hold of things they perceive may fill their souls, what do they do with it? They cram it in their mouth more and more and more. It's like a drug. You have a little bit of these, these entertaining things that might fill us for a moment. We need more. We need more. Maybe just a little bit more. More sex, 
more entertainment, more fame, more success. The hungry man fills his face with ash. That's what this is. All this turns to nothing more than ash in the stomach. He fills his hands with it. He shoves it in his mouth until it comes out his nose. He's desperate to fulfill the longing, the hole that gnaws at him. The more he consumes, the more he finds he's empty. The more he partakes, the more his soul languishes. It cannot be filled. It cannot be abated. The ash is just ash. It sours the stomach. It poisons the body. And the man who continues to cram it in his mouth cries out, nourishment, nourishment. I must be nourished. Nothing else will do. I need bread. I need food. And yet he finds only ash. Is this not the state of our world? Is this not the state of mankind? Billions of men filling their stomachs with ash, yearning to be filled, but finding nothing but gnawing, empty hunger. But then, many, realizing their estate, they see the ash for what it is, its filler that will never fill. And the hunger of a man's soul leads him to lift his eyes and see the gift that has been there the whole time. The manna that lies in the dew of the grass. The bread from heaven that can do what no pleasure on this earth can do, which can fill that which no other food can. The man lifts his eyes and sees the bread of life. And this poor man with new eyes that sees the gift and the nutrition. He throws the ash on the ground and he claws his way across the the dirt, the ground. He reaches out in desperation and he grasps him. He who died on the cross to save those who believe in him. He who was sacrificed. He who lives to never die again. And the man can do nothing but cry out in weeping desperation. I must have the bread. I must have the bread. Give me Christ or I die. Give me Christ or I will this moment perish. And this is the story of every man who knows a time apart from the Savior. If you feel your soul, dear Christian, long for satisfaction, perhaps God has let you hunger so that he may fill you with the riches of his Son. In the pangs, if the pangs of spiritual hunger grip you, you must look at your life What ash fills your stomach? Church, the manna is there. Christ, our Savior, he's right there. Look to him. Look to him and be filled. Run to him. Forsake everything else. These things cannot fill you, church. They cannot satisfy your aching heart. Throw the ash away and run to the manna. Cry out, give me Christ or I die. What can fill the hungry soul? 
Jesus. Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. If you know not the Jesus of the Bible, I promise you, I promise you, you will ever feel the presence of stalking meaninglessness. You will feel purposelessness. You will feel empty until you are filled with the one who gives rest to our souls. So ask yourself, saints, what fills your soul? What worldly entertainment? What evil vice? What gift of God have you twisted to be your prime source of satisfaction and fulfillment? Have you tasted its ashiness yet? Have you felt its emptiness? After Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000, he said to the crowd that obsessively followed him, you're not looking for me because you believe my signs, but because I fed you and you like that. What you really should be searching for is the bread that leads to eternal life. John 6 records Jesus saying, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowd responds, they say, I want this bread. And Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The one who partakes of Jesus will never be empty. No activity, no career, no earthly relationship can grant your soul the unending peace and satisfaction that the Lord Jesus Christ can. No good deed or religious status can ever bring you peace with God. Sin causes separation from God. And it is that separation from our creator that creates a chasm in our souls. If one dies in a state of sin, the man will forever bear the punishment of separation from God, of a soul never filled. God is the source of all good things. Separation from him for all eternity is to be cast into hell, condemned. Whoever partakes of Christ, whoever clings to his work, Whoever trusts in his life, death, and resurrection will not perish, but shall have eternal life. That's why Jesus said he is the true bread of God that comes down from heaven. The man who casts himself on the mercies of God, who leaves his works behind and only clings by faith to the Lord, will be forgiven, cleansed, justified. He'll be satisfied. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sins this very day. Turn to Jesus. Your own works are death to you. Cling only to him. The man who trusts in his ability to earn salvation is like the man who supposed he could grow a healthy crop in the barren wilderness. It does not matter how good of a farmer you are. You can't create water when there is none. Receive the true bread of God, the true manna that comes from heaven. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Church, our earthly priorities will never fulfill us. It's Christ, Christ, and only Christ. Turn your back on him, you will starve. Partake in him, you will never hunger again. And Christ gives himself to you, his people, his church, to be received by faith, to be baptized into through baptism, to be partaken of in communion, to be heard through preaching. Oh, the sweetness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says the song says, 
Let living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. All glory be to Christ. We've looked at how this verse speaks to our physical need, our spiritual hunger. Now let us turn our attention to how we also must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Whether for physical or spiritual needs, our solution is the same. We must live by all that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I think that the uh, modern prevalence of the word of faith movement has made us gun shy from recognizing that God has made very legitimate promises to us. We see when we read his word, promises given, promises to not leave us, promises to comfort us, promises to sanctify us, to grow us in godliness, promises for resurrection, promises to give us power by his spirit, promises to give us joy and wisdom, promises to strengthen us in Christ. And when we are in desperate need, these are the things we must cling to. These are the things that we ought to pray for. The Exodus generation, for all they saw and experienced, did not heed God's word. They saw their circumstances, and they feared their situation. The spies came out of the land of Canaan and freaked out because of terrible giants. They said, the land can't be conquered. We can't enter into it. It's not possible. Fear gripped them, anxiety, dread. They said, oh, it would have been better to stay in Egypt. We cannot enter the land. It is too great a task for a people like ours. But the Lord of heaven's armies had spoken to them in a, in a command, you must go in and dispossess the people from the land. Their eyes had been brought down to see their feeble human weaknesses, but they never looked to the word of the Lord. They did not live on his promises. They never trusted in his power promised to him to them through his word. So they perished in that wilderness, the entire generation. They never entered the promised land. God's purposes were not thwarted. This new generation stood at the cusp of the conquest. They knew the sins of their forefathers. They knew of their failing and their rebellion. And Moses was warning them, do not be like your fathers. Do not rely on your flesh. Be humble. Rely on the word of the Lord. Trust in what he has promised. Christian, be humble, rely on the word of the Lord, trust in what he has promised. Where ought Christians look for strength? Where ought we find our courage? Where ought we find our duties, our instructions? I assure you, it's not on your phones. It's not on TV. It's not on Facebook. It's not in the news. It's in the word of the living God. Joshua spoke to the people after Moses died right after Deuteronomy was given, and this is what he said to them. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The book of the law should not depart from our mouths, church. We should meditate on it day and night. We should be strong and courageous to do all that God has given for us to do. Cling to the word of the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 5 continues. It says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. 
The Lord your God disciplines you. God's training in the wilderness, God's permitting the people to hunger, these are the acts of love, of love. We asked earlier, why were they to remember the leadings in the wilderness? Why were they to remember that time? It was because that time was discipline for them. It was training for them. The Lord trains His people. He disciplines them. He sharpens them. He refines them. Hebrews 12 tells us, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our Father continues to discipline us. Though we're not living in a desert, we are being disciplined for our good. And it's painful. It's painful. Discipline hurts. But it yields good fruit. Do not despise seasons of discipline, saints. Do not despise times of trial in hardship. Do not hate them. Do not become bitter in your heart towards them. For the Lord your God is using these things for your good, for your holiness, for His glory. And it does not matter your specific tribulation. The Lord is training you, whether need of finances or fear, whether broken relationships or emotional turmoil, whether loss or need, learn to live on every word from God. Learn to see His good purposes in suffering and trials. How many of us wish we could go back to being a kid and thank our parents when they discipline us and say, thank you, thank you. Thank you. We look back upon discipline with fondness once we are older, recognizing that it bore good fruit. Thank the Lord for disciplining His children. And when you encounter trials of any kind, let it produce joy in your hearts. Church, do not waste your trials. Verse 6 says, last verse, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. Herein lies the simple duty of man, to keep His commandments and to fear Him. We are disciplined and taught to rely on the Word of the Lord so that we may keep His commandments, walk in His ways, and fear Him. The book of Revelation tells us that Christ's bride has prepared herself for her wedding, that the church is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, and then it tells us that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So many people see Christianity as being about us, but it is not chiefly about us. It is about our God. It is about elevating His mightiness. It is about declaring His gloriousness. It is about radiating His holiness. You are a beacon, dear saint, that is to shine the holiness of God a beacon that declares His goodness to the nations. We, we are a nerdy church. We love theology and doctrine. We love arguing about it. We love disagreements. We love looking at Scripture and saying, what does this mean? What does this verse say? We love it. But we must realize that our, our theology and our doctrine is designed to grow us in our obedience and in our affections for the Lord. It has a purpose we cannot divorce theology and doctrine from the purpose. Saints, be imitators of God. Israel's wandering in the wilderness was not purposeless. It was to train them, to instruct them, 
and to discipline them. And we too are in the years of wilderness wanderings, awaiting entrance into the promised land. We're being trained and instructed and disciplined by hunger and thirst. May God use our hunger to grant us a firm trust in Him. May He grant us humility and deeply rooted affection for Him. May He give our weary souls rest and satisfaction. May He cause us to desperately cling to every word of His. And may He cause us to be holy as He is holy. Let's pray. Father, forgive us our sins. Cleanse us. Remind us of the gospel by which we are saved. Help us to see the state of our souls apart from your grace. Cause us to recognize that on this earth none is righteous, no, not one, that all have turned aside, that no one is good. Help us to see the gospel of Christ. Give us thanksgiving to you for cleansing us from our sins, justifying us by faith, by giving us the righteousness of Christ, by giving us your spirit, sealing us, by preserving us, sanctifying us. And we thank you for the day of resurrection that we eagerly await for. Father, help us in our time of need. Give us a desperate reliance on you. Humble us. Turn our eyes to you. Grant our hearts a love for you. Make us needy. Make us meek. Make us humble. Make us weak that you may be seen as the God who provides. That you may be seen as the one who has provided our every need. Lord, please bless our church with holiness and with love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.